Good morning, Johnson Ferry. Uh, it's been an incredible weekend here with our students, with it being D-Now one weekend. The theme has been uh, wonder. I don't know if you can read that, but just we're wondering uh, in the wonder of God. And we're certainly treasuring who he is and challenging students to live for him and share him. And it's great to be together with you this morning. Who was, who's happy for an extra hour of sleep? Anybody out there happy? It's funny, uh, in the spring, everyone complains about losing an hour. We're writing letters to our legislators. Get rid of it. No one complains in the fall. It's amazing how that works. But we're, we're so glad you're here. I wanna welcome everyone in our sanctuary as well. It's already been an incredible time to worship uh, God. And not only are we thankful for our student ministry and what God is doing there, but I'm so thankful for an incredible worship ministry, particularly this band who has led, I think, five or six services in the last three days. Because we just honor those who have led us <laughs> worship. It's awesome. Awesome. Love it. Um, today we're gonna look at a parable. I think we have three weeks left in our series in the parables. Today we're gonna look at a parable in Luke chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, in just a few minutes we're gonna be reading Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. And as I say every single week, these parables are tough. Not, not always tough to understand, but, but Jesus hits us between the eyes and he's gonna do that today uh, in a message about following him. But before we jump into that, let me just ask you a question, both rooms. Uh, I'm assuming that when I ask you this question, all of you or almost all of you in both rooms are gonna raise your hand. So here's a question. How many of you would say that you are a fan of a team? Could be any team, anywhere. Anybody here a fan of a team? All right, yeah, you're always like, I don't wanna raise my hand in church. Yes, so fan of a team. Yeah, most of us are fans of some kind of a team. The word fan, of course, is a a shortened form of the word fanatic. I looked that up. The technical definition of fanatic, it means to have excessive enthusiasm and often intense, uncritical devotion towards someone or something. And as a Gamecock fan, I feel that, uncritical devotion towards someone or something. And so you guys are fans of teams. You know what it looks like to be a fan. Maybe you saw this a few weeks ago. There was a lady at a, at a Los Angeles Chargers NFL game. Her name is Marianne Doe. And I don't know if you saw this on Monday Night Football. It went viral because of this lady's reactions to her team. She was a fan. If you want some time, look it up and watch her reactions. In fact, they were so intense that many people thought that, that she was an actor who had been paid you know, and the camera caught her and she, and she went crazy. And she does what fans do, they go crazy for their team. What do fans do? Fans, they keep up with the team. If you're a fan of a team like you said you were, you, you probably spent a little money on your team. It could be that you bought a t-shirt or a hat. Maybe you bought a ticket to see a game every now and then, maybe even season tickets. And fans, fans go crazy for their team. Fans do weird things. Like we use this phrase, being a fan, we've all done it. We use this weird phrase. It's the phrase, we won. Isn't that weird that we say we won? Because at no point did you exert any energy in practice for that team to win. You, you don't have a jersey that was on the field for the team to want. You haven't strained any muscles at all uh, for that team to want. You haven't gone to the gym for the team. You haven't sat in a strategy meeting about success on or off the field. And yet we say we won as if we are a part of the team. Because why? We're a fan and we love to be a fan. 
Jesus Christ does not want fans. Jesus Christ often ministered to large crowds. In fact, in this parable that we're gonna read in a few minutes, Jesus Christ is talking to a large crowd. Now in the church world, we love large crowds. I mean, this room right now and the AC is packed. We've got people sitting on the track. I'm sure the sanctuary is packed as well. We, we love large crowds. We love Easter Sunday and Christmas when the room is filled. We love to watch stadiums that are filled with people that come to worship the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with, with large crowds. I, I imagine heaven is gonna be an amazingly large crowd worshiping, worshiping Jesus together. But Jesus Christ was never enamored with large crowds because he knew that yes, there were people who were genuinely following him, but some people just wanted to see the miracle. I mean, who doesn't wanna see him feed 5,000 people with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread? Who doesn't wanna see a miracle of this blind guy that can now see? Who, who doesn't wanna see the, the deaf person here, the lame person walk? People love to see the show. And while Jesus spent a lot of time convincing people to follow him, he spent just as much time convincing people why they shouldn't follow him, or at least why they should be aware of what it's gonna cost the following him. And that's what this text today is all about. It's about the cost of following Jesus. Jesus doesn't want fans, he wants followers. And so the big idea of, of this text today is this. Salvation is free, but it'll cost you everything. The salvation that you are given from the Lord is free, at least it's free to you. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin by dying on the cross for our sins. We don't have to earn a relationship with God. We don't have to earn God's love and favor. Salvation is free, which is a miracle and it's amazing, but following Jesus will cost you everything. And this is the text that wars with any sense of easy believism that would somehow portray following Jesus as just believing the right things and then acting in ways that don't correspond to what you believe. So let's look at this text today, Luke 14, verses 25 to 33, and just allow Jesus to challenge us. I think there's a challenging message for all of us today about asking, am I, am I a fan or am I a follower? So as soon as you get there and if you're physically able, would you stand up and let me read for you Luke 14, verses 25 and we'll end in verse 33. Now, large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, and is not able to finish, all who are watching it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 
10,000 men to face the one coming against him with 20,000. Otherwise, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and requests terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Father, even reading that, we hear words like hating, renouncing, giving up. You saying that we can't be your disciple? Jesus, I I pray that you would teach us today about what it is that you want from us when it comes to following you. And Father, I pray that your spirit would work in a powerful way, both here in the activity center, in the sanctuary, even online to those who watch right now. God, to convict us, to motivate us, to encourage us to live like you want us to live. And we're gonna pray that in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You guys can take a seat. So the scene here, as you read in verse 25, is that once again, Jesus has a large crowd in front of him. Now, if I were a PR director for Jesus, I'm thinking, this is going great. I mean, Jesus, you, you came out of nowhere and look at the crowd that you've generated. Look, look how many followers you have. Jesus, have you looked at your Instagram account? It's amazing how many people you got following you. And yet Jesus turns to the crowd, knowing their hearts, and he challenges them. And he looks at this large crowd and says the following in verse 26. If anyone comes to me, in other words, if you wanna follow me, and you don't also hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters. Yes, if you don't hate your own life, you cannot, you cannot be my disciple. Now, we're gonna talk about what that word hate means. But first we need to understand that Jesus Christ is getting across something to us and that is that when when you are saved, that is not the finish line. In fact, when you are saved, I mean this weekend we had 20 or so students who said, "I I wanna give my life to Jesus Christ and that's awesome. When they said yes to Jesus, they were not crossing the finish line, they were merely at the beginning of the race to follow him in discipleship. And the gospel is this beautiful message. I hope you know the gospel, maybe you don't, maybe there's someone here for the first time today. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about this, the story of God's salvation, what he is doing right now and what he's doing in the world. See, at the beginning of the world, God created a perfect world, a world where no sin existed, a world where he creates the animals and the sun and the stars, and the highlight of his creation are human beings, made the image of God. Only humans are made in the image of God. And Adam and Eve, as we read in Genesis, did what we do. They they trusted in the lie of Satan. They trusted themselves. They give God the stiff arm and, and they choose to do life on their own. And then the world falls and the world is broken and sin enters into the world, which is why we have a broken world right now. It's why we have a world where you get cancer. It's why we live in a world where a terroristic group like Hamas attacks Israel. 
It's a world where unfair, at least in our view, unfair things happen to the people that we call good people. Why? Why? Because we live in a broken world and we deserve a broken world because we have given God the stiff arm and yet because God is not like us and doesn't give us what we deserve, God gives us his grace and his mercy and he sent Jesus Christ to rescue us and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Every world religion, every one of them, is about what you do to earn God's favor. Christianity is very different. It's about what was done for you in the person and work and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one day we have this eternal reward waiting on us. What is that eternal reward? It's life with God. It's life in the presence of God. It's it's eternal life in the kingdom of God. But from the time you are saved to the time you go to be with Jesus, You have this journey to walk, and it's a journey that can be difficult. And Jesus in this parable is making sure that we know just how difficult this is gonna be. It's gonna require a cost, and it's gonna require us to be growing in him. I love how Paul says it like this in Colossians 1. This is what Paul said about his own ministry. We proclaim him. Who's him? Jesus. We keep talking about Jesus. Admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom, why? So that we may present every person complete in Christ. That word complete means mature, growing to be like Jesus. None of us are perfect, we all still sin, yet the more we follow Jesus, the more we are to look like Jesus, to react like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to live like Jesus. We we are not Jesus, we won't do it perfectly, But the goal is that we become mature in Christ. Paul was never satisfied with people merely getting saved. It was that they were saved and discipled and walking in the ways of Jesus. And Jesus is making sure that the crowds know, hey, you wanna follow me? Just know something. You're gonna have to hate the people most precious to you. Father, mother, brother, sisters, even your own life. Now, what does he mean by the word hate? I mean, after all, God tells us to love our neighbor. Why would he then say to hate? Well, the word hate doesn't mean necessarily what you think it does. After all, Jesus took care of his own family. One of his very last acts on the cross was to make sure that his mother Mary was taken care of. Jesus loved his own earthly family. Jesus wants you to love your own earthly family. But in Jesus's day, particularly for people who grew up in Jewish households, though it wasn't exclusive to Jewish households, Saying yes to Jesus as the Messiah was simultaneously saying no to your family of origin. Not that you wanted it that way, but you were ostracized. You were sometimes persecuted. And did you know that still happens in many places today? That may not be true for you today in America. Maybe it is. Maybe when you said yes to Jesus, your family stopped talking to you or your family ostracized you. I don't know. But in a lot of places around the world, This is one of the first lessons that is taught in discipleship. I I told you last week that I spent time in North Africa in the Middle East two weeks ago with with a team from Johnson Ferry. And we heard incredible stories of faithfulness to God, but also with a cost. For instance, we heard of two uh, teenage girls in the last year or two who came to Christ. Both heard the gospel out of a Muslim background. Both came to Jesus together. Their father heard about it, killed both of his daughters. So that that still happens today. 
One of the pastors that we met with was formerly a Muslim, came to know Christ as a savior because Islam cannot provide what Jesus does. And he comes to know Christ and he's ministering in his name and, and he's been beaten, he's been put in jail, he's gone through a lot of hardship. And when they baptize people, you know, here at John's Fair, we baptize people, we ask them two questions. You know, are you being baptized today because Jesus is your Lord and Savior? And everyone says, yes, or they say, Jesus. Then we say, are you willing to follow him wherever he calls you to go? And people say, yes. But I don't think we think about that at the level that they do. In fact, one of the, one of the questions that they ask when someone comes to Christ and is baptized is this. Are you sure? Are you sure? Why do they ask that? Because when they are baptized, publicly identifying with Christ, they are signing up for a very hard life. When Jesus talks about hate, he's saying that he wants to be first place in our life. I did a series a few years ago here at John Safari called Jesus First. If you were around then, you may remember that. But I talked about how when I saw our logo with JF, I thought about that phrase, Jesus first. And that of all the things we wanna be known for at John Safari, we wanna be a Jesus first church, amen? We wanna be a church when people think about us, we're not perfect, we're sinners, I messed up, you're messed up, but they want us to think, man, that's a Jesus church. They talk about Jesus, they share Jesus, they try to live like Jesus. This is a Jesus first church. Jesus wants us to be Jesus first people, which means that if he is first, everything else in our life has to be second. Our money, our family, our hobbies, our careers, everything has to be second for Jesus to be first. John Stott, talking about this passage, makes the following comment. When Jesus uses the word hate, he wants us to develop an inner detachment to material things so that we are no longer ensnared by them or enslaved by them. Followers of Jesus are to be characterized not by covetous materialism, nor by austere asceticism, but rather by simplicity, generosity, and contentment. If we are not willing to put Jesus first above our relations, above our ambitions, above our possessions, we cannot be his disciple. So Jesus is looking at the crowd and going, hey, are you sure? Because look what he says next in verse 27. For whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Carrying your own cross. You know, we, 2,000 years later, we have so sentimentalized the cross. A lot of you today have on a cross necklace or earrings or a shirt with a cross on it. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a way of symbolizing what's most important to you. But in the way that we think a cross is sweet today, in Jesus' day, the cross, it, it, was, it was something of shame. You didn't talk about a cross. It was like the electric chair or a noose. It, it was an instrument of death and of shame and of guilt. And Jesus says, you are to carry your own cross to follow me. This doesn't mean that you literally carry a cross on your back. It just means that you're gonna bear his burden. You're gonna sign up for a life of disgrace in the eyes of the public. Hebrews calls it bearing his reproach. If you're not willing to carry your cross, then you cannot be his disciple. 
Earlier in Luke 9, Jesus said it like this. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. Again, don't be mistaken. Jesus Christ paid the cost for our sin by suffering on the cross. He bore the reproach of our sin so that we might be made holy and right in his sight. Being a follower of Jesus means following him whatever, whenever, wherever he calls us to go. And yes, while salvation is free, it will cost you everything to truly follow him. Are you a fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus? To drive home his point, Jesus tells two very short parables. That's what drew me to this passage because we're going through a message in the parables. He tells two. The first is found in verse 28 through 30. It's about a guy who wants to build a tower. He says, you know, for instance, if you wanna build a tower, would you not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if you have enough to complete it? I mean, if you didn't, verse 29, when you've laid the foundation, if you're not able to finish, everyone watching will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and was not able to finish. You, you would build a tower back in the day for different reasons. Sometimes farmers would build towers, a place to store grain, a place to see if, if predators were coming to steal your crop. Military towers were very popular. You would build them for obvious reasons, to watch out for a city. And he doesn't say what kind of tower it is. It doesn't matter. He's just saying, imagine what it would be like if you were gonna build this tower, but you didn't first sit down and think about how much this is gonna cost, how long will it take? Do we have the building supplies to build it? Do we have the labor to build it? If you don't think through all that, you just kind of wing it and you start to build and then you get to where you can't build anymore because you ran out of money, you ran out of product, you ran out of labor. Other people look at this half-built tower and think you're a fool. How, how, could, you, how could you begin to build this and not... Think about what it would have taken to complete the task. Jesus is saying the same is true in following me. Are you sure? Have you thought about what it's gonna look like for you to follow me? In the same way, he tells a parable about a king who goes to battle, verse 31 and 32. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to face the one coming against him with 20,000. Otherwise, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and requests terms of peace. You're a king of an army. You have 10,000 men fighting for you, but you know the other army has 20,000, which means you gotta sit down and think about, yes, we're outnumbered, but do we have the strength? Do we have the weapons? Can we take this army? Do we have the resolve? If not, we should probably send out some delegates to prevent a war that we can't win to somehow either surrender or settle terms of peace. Jesus says, a good king would do that. He's telling us, you need to know what you're up against and prepare for that. And I can't help when I read that to think about the fact that we, as followers of Jesus, we're in a battle, aren't we? And we have an enemy who wants to destroy us, who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, thankfully, Satan is not as strong as God, and that's good news, amen? Even the devil, as Martin Luther said, is God's devil. But he is stronger than us. And we need the power of Christ and we need the Holy Spirit in our life and we need to take stock that when we sign up to say yes to Jesus, there is a cost. And are we willing to pay the cost? So Jesus ends this teaching in verse 33 
by getting out of the parable and just being straightforward. So then none of you, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up his own possessions. It's interesting when we read texts like that, we tend to, we tend to dismiss them. We think about the fact that only the rich young ruler is the only example we have of someone where Jesus asked to give up all of his stuff, to sell it and follow him. And that makes us feel better because let's be honest, we don't wanna give up all our stuff. But what if we just read it at its face value? Jesus is saying, unless you are willing to give up all of your stuff, and Lord knows all of us have a lot of stuff, unless you're willing to give all that up, you cannot, you cannot be his disciple. Salvation is free, but it'll cost you everything. History is filled with example after example of people who paid the ultimate price, the price of their life to follow after Jesus. I think about particular ones who've inspired me through the years, men like John Bunyan or Adoniram Judson, David Brainerd, others. The first missionary I heard, ever heard about who gave his life for Christ was about 20 years ago. It was, a, it was a man by the name of Jim Elliott. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Uh, Jim Elliott was a part of a, of a crew who, as a bunch of 20-somethings, went to Ecuador to reach a particular Indian tribe. And he went with four other men. He was married, another man was married. All their families went to Ecuador and, and they were trying to make contact with this tribe and, and they had a few interactions with some of the Indians there in this tribe and, and it went positively and they set up a meeting but when they got to the meeting, the tribe had brought the rest of their Indians and they saw these white skinned men as a threat and they speared them to death, killing all five of them. And this story was national news. Many of you might remember have, having read about that. In fact, Life Magazine read a 10-page article about this sacrifice, and they used this phrase. They called it a seemingly senseless sacrifice. Long story short, Elizabeth Elliot, an amazing woman, went back to that tribe with her daughter and began to lead these men to Christ, loving them, forgiving them. The very men who killed her husband and she wrote a book about it, and she wrote in response to what Life Magazine had called a senseless sacrifice, and she said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to get what he cannot lose. That was right out of Jim's diary. He is no fool. You're not a fool if you give what you can't keep. What can't you keep? Your life. This temporal life, you, you can't keep it. You're not a fool to give up your life because you're getting what you can't lose. What is that? It is glory with Jesus. Now, most of us will not be called to give our physical life for Jesus. Maybe, who knows what the future holds. And I, I pray that all of us would be willing to give our lives for Christ. And some of you, if, if you go to the nations where we are praying that you will go, may put yourself in a place where that might be asked of you. But most of us living in Atlanta in 2023 are not gonna be called to give our physical lives for Jesus. But there's still a cost to be paid. There's still a death that we need to die to self.
I wanna talk about what might just be three deaths that you need to think about this week. I'll go through these fairly quickly, but if you wanna write these down, three deaths that we need to die to pay this cost in following Jesus. Number one, what's the first death? It's a death to selfish determination. Selfish determination, selfish ambition. You remember that story when right before Jesus is gonna be arrested and, and go to down a cross, his disciples get into an argument. Do you remember this? And I love how Luke 22 summarizes their argument. It says this, and a dispute also developed among them as to which one of them was regarded as being the greatest. Jesus is about to die. What are they arguing about? Yeah, yeah, I know the whole death thing, but Jesus, which one of us is gonna be the greatest in heaven? And not only that, these two wimpy boys send their mama to do the work. That's what we're all like a lot of times. Yeah, 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 Jesus, death, heaven, God, all that, but what about me? You know, we often renounce and repudiate an outward, explicit prosperity gospel, which is taught in a lot of places all over the world, including this country. In fact, we have exported it from America around the world. And it's this false teaching that says, if you follow God faithfully, then he's gonna give you really good things. You follow Jesus, you're gonna get a nice house. You follow Jesus, you're gonna get that car you've always wanted. You follow Jesus, you have plenty of money. You follow Jesus, you never get sick. Now, it is amazing that, that we do prosper in the Lord. I mean, God gives good gifts to his kids. And I won't dismiss that at all. But if you somehow go into this relationship thinking, if I, then he will, then you are believing what is a heresy. And we might say, no, no, we don't believe in prosperity gospel. But there is a kind of implicit prosperity gospel that a lot of us are attracted to. It's this idea that, yes, we can follow Jesus and pay the cost, but then we can have this really awesome life at the same time that impresses other people. Mark Sayers wrote a book called Disappearing Church, and I love how he summed up this very thought. He's talking about Christians particularly in America. He says, we subtly imbibe the implicit prosperity gospel through consumerism and advertising, but also through viewing the lives of other Christians who seem to lead amazing, meaningful, pleasure-filled lives. We only have to troll through our Instagram feeds to find pastors, believing musicians, artists, authors, activists, who seem to live incredible lives. These people seem to have the best of both worlds. They follow Jesus and they get to travel, live in cool neighborhoods, hang with interesting people, have incredible marriages or rock the single life and connect with the most amazing people. Have you ever noticed how appealing everyone looks online? I sometimes look at my life online. I think, I wish I lived that life, right? I'm jealous of myself sometimes online because we just publish our highlight reel when everything's awesome. And if we're not careful, we start to think, yeah, yeah, the cost of following Jesus, but I really wanna be a big deal in the eyes of other people. Selfish ambition, selfish determination. We gotta die to that stuff. What else do we need to die to? Number two, sinful desires. Sinful desires. This might seem obvious, we have to continually be putting sin to death through the power of Christ. Romans 6, 11 says this, talking to Christians. So you too consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
I'm still gonna sin, you're still gonna sin, until the day we die or Christ comes back, we're gonna have this tendency to fall back into sinful patterns. But I have to get up every day, die to self, and, and, and consider myself dead to sin. A lot of you are letting sins master you because you're not allowing Christ to master you and putting that sin to death. Sinful desires. Number three, what's another death? We have to die to secondary distractions. Secondary distractions. As I said earlier, we are at war with an enemy who seeks our destruction, who wants to distract us. And often we think about the devil, him being out in front of us. How is he gonna hurt us? Either by tempting us to sin or through outright persecution, which is certainly the case in a lot of places in the world today. You follow Jesus, your life is in jeopardy. But in our pursuit of looking out here, we tend to forget our flank over here. And one of the ways that Satan works in our life is through these seemingly good things that can become secondary distractions. Hebrews 12 says this, therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle, we're gonna come back to that word, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's talking about running this race. And yes, there is sin that can entangle us, but there's also obstacles, weights, things that aren't bad, but can become distractions. This is what we're talking about when we talk about our, our family, our kids, our sports, our money, our career, our vacations, our boats, our houses. None of those things are bad things but we need to be careful that those good things don't become God things that keep us from truly following Jesus. There's a story of uh, the Knights Templar around 1000 AD when they were heading back into Jerusalem to fight what they considered a holy war or a crusade. There was a, there was a story about that they would be baptized before going to war and then when they were baptized, they would hold their sword above the water it's a way of saying, hey, God, I'm gonna give you my whole life, but not my sword. I'm gonna fight with that. And whether that tr story is true or apocryphal, we kind of do the same thing. Like, what do we hold up to God? It's like, I'm gonna be baptized, death to self, as we hold up our phone, making sure that doesn't get under the water, or a wad of cash, or a picture of our family. You can have all of me, it's not that. Salvation is free but it's gonna cost you everything. Are you sure? Are you sure you wanna follow Jesus? Uh, tomorrow here at the church, we're gonna do something that's a lot of fun. We, it's our Veterans Day lunch and we invite all kinds of veterans from our church and community to come. And we do this cool thing called a walk of honor. And so um, we'll parade them in and the kids from our school wave the flags and we go crazy. It's all these guys are trying to squeeze in their old uniforms. You know, they're walking in here and it's, it's awesome, I, I love that day. And then we have a big lunch for them. And, and we reflect on 
the service of men and women for our country. And, and I was reading something recently about the men who stormed the beaches of Normandy uh, on D-Day. I mean, what, what produces the courage to, to jump out of this boat knowing that your life is about to end? There's a lot of letters from some of the men who, who did that, that that made it home. One of them is a letter by a guy named Jack Lundberg. He's not famous, probably never heard of him. Second lieutenant in the army. And he wrote a letter that his parents got as this man died on that fateful day. And his letter said this to his parents. He was married, he was 25. He says, you have had many times more your share of illness and deaths in the family. Still, you have continued, talking to his parents, to exemplify what true parents should. I am sorry to add to your grief, but at all times realize that my thoughts are of you constantly and that I feel that in some small way, I'm helping to bring this wasteful war to a conclusion. We of the United States have something to fight for. Never more fully have I realized that. There's just no other country with comparable wealth, advancement, standard of living. The USA is worth a sacrifice. Remember always that I love you most fervently and I'm proud of you. Consider Mary, my wife, as having taken my place in the family circle and watch over each other. Love to my family. How, how do you muster up the courage to storm the beaches of Normandy? According to Jack Lundberg, it's pretty simple. You consider yourself dead before you even get there. And while I love our country, we have something far greater than a country, far greater than your career, far greater than your money, far greater than even your family. We have the precious, the precious salvation that's given to us in Jesus Christ. And that's worth the cost of living for Jesus no matter what. I wanna pray for you as it regards to this. And I was thinking about Galatians 2, which is my favorite verse. And, and this is what Paul said about his life. And I wonder if this is true of you. He said, he said, for I have been crucified by Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, in other words, the life that I live now going to work or taking my kid to baseball practice or visiting my mom in, in the nursing home, the, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Salvation is free, but it'll cost you everything to follow Jesus. I wonder if there's someone here today sitting right here in the AC, maybe over in the sanctuary. And let's be honest, you, you're, you've been playing church for years, but you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ. And I believe that today needs to be the day of salvation for you. Saying, God, I wanna surrender my life to you. Come into my life, forgive me, save me, change me. I also think there are a lot of you who've been following Jesus for decades and, and you have drifted into secondary things and you're not living a Jesus first life and you too need to surrender your all to God.
So I don't know what God wants to do in your life, but I do know that he's moving. He's been moving all weekend and I pray he's moving right now. So I'd love to pray for you. Father, we just come to you now and just trust that Lord, you're working in these two services this morning. God, thank you for the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for the finished work of Christ by you being our substitutionary sacrifice, that we are made righteous because of your payment on the cross for our sins. But in the same way, God, that you challenged them 2,000 years ago, God, you're challenging us now. Are we, are we paying the cost to follow you? Are we giving are all to you? Are we all in on this Jesus thing? Are we just trying to kind of play church? God, whatever you need to do in the lives of people today, would you do it? Lord, do we surrender all we are to you, all we have to you, to be your disciple? God, we love you and we thank you for how you work. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray, that we preach, and that we sing. Amen.